the great mother whom we call Inanna gave a gift to woman that is not known among men this is the secret of blood the flow at the dark of the moon the healing blood of the moon's birth to men is flux and distemper bother and pain they imagine we suffer and consider themselves lucky 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 we do not disabuse them in the red tent the truth is not in the red tent where days pass like a gentle stream as the gift of inanna courses through us cleansing the body of last month's death preparing the body the new Months life. Women give thanks for repose and restoration. For the knowledge that life comes from comes between, between our legs. That life costs blood. Anita Diamond. Anita. It was an absolute honour to listen and speak with Luita Mojica today for Prilly's Red Tent, a somatic therapist and nutritionist. He specialises in teaching people how to heal trauma through listening and relating to their bodies. He uses whole food nutrition, self-inquiry and somatic experiencing as tools to develop safety within the body. He also has a fascinating work around nutrition and how we choose certain food groups in an attempt to regulate the body. We talk of his journey into somatic healing and his use of music as a form of healing. Do check out his new album if you're interested. He also talks me through how to regulate during my daughter's tantrums so for anybody who's on the journey of parenting you know whether that's biologically or just you're around children this is super helpful and he just has a way of articulating these really complicated concepts and bring it all together through biology and somatic experience and just being real. So for anybody that is a little bit confused on what the trauma responses are or exactly what this all means, this is just such a great way 
to find out about it all. So thank you so much, Louis. And I'm also so excited to do the six-week course, which is offering for healing, stress, and trauma. So I'm super geeking out about that. So so grateful. And with over 15 years of experience, he's found that a deeper connection to the self and the world around us emerges from that state of safety. And we learn how to stop avoiding our bodies and start relating to them. Louise is the soul and the brains behind holistic life navigation as well. So please do check that out. And that's actually how I came across Louise's fascinating work. I also have a trigger warning for anybody. We do discuss sexual trauma and disordered eating during the podcast. One of my goals is to get some serious programs in the public education so this becomes just like a, a normal experience, yeah. right? Because this is like the basis of so much of like, oh it's like goodness. literally living, you know? It's that... literally, it's, it's everything. <laughs> it's everything. <laughs> we live from our bodies, right? So it's like everything comes from this state. Hi, Louise. Hi. So grateful for you coming on Prinny's Red Tent today. So we always start with Prinny's questions. Um, so what is or has been your greatest medicine? Mm. Wow, that's a good question. I would say the greatest medicine is listening, for sure. It's like yeah. being listened to and listening is just such a beautiful experience on both sides. Mm. And how would you describe your life purpose? I would say that it feels like, you know, I never think of my life purpose in like a conscious way, but when I think about it in this question, it, it would really be to, to relate. You know, I, I love just relating to every, everything around me. And I learned so much through that and I connect so beautifully through that. Mm. And if you could have a dish of food named after you, what would it be called? Oh, wow. That's a great one. Oh. <laughs> um, what would it be called? That's great. I think I would, it would be called Temple. Mm. You know, there was a documentary where um, a, a Buddhist nun makes this incredible food on, in a monastery and she calls it Temple Food. And so I've been really uh, just loving that term temple food and the body temple. And oh feeding my God. It. Totally. It's so holistic. I love yeah, it. it's so gorgeous. <laughs> Story or a film or even like a myth that resonated with you growing up and why? You know, I, it's interesting. I would have to say it was Disney's Pocahontas. Oh my God. I, that's one of mine. Do you yes. get that too? Yeah. Oh my God. It was the I know first... it's a little bit problematic now, but of yeah, sorry. Course. <laughs> and, I, and I respect the problematic elements for sure. And there was a strange medicine there for me. It was the first time seeing anybody that I, re I related to on a main screen. It was huge. Oh my God. Yeah. And I literally used to like perform to myself, like in the bath. Like I oh, loved yeah. how she was like connected to all of the elements. I was literally like that as a kid, I would like, you know, like talk to the wind and everything. I understood it so much. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Your favorite song lyric or song, which I know you do music, which you've written. My favorite lyric that I've written. Yeah. Or just like in general, it's up to you. Mm. Gosh, these are really, these are really <laughs> unusual, great questions. I know. Like, I, I, I would like, I always say like pretty questions, but actually they're meant to be quick, but they're always like, no, they're like, <laughs> <intense>. <laughs> they are like, I'm really contemplating. These are great <laughs> questions. Um, there's a song from Leonard Cohen called Stranger Song. 
and it's always really moved me. And I'm I'm trying to I think the 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 line it's hard to hold the hand of anyone who is reaching for the sky to surrender. Um always always moved me so oh yeah that's like poetry I love that yeah (laughs) (laughs) and a book which changed your life oh now that's easy oh my goodness the author's name is I'm losing his name right now do you remember the book Jonathan Livingston Seagull yeah I'm forgetting oh Richard Bach is the author yeah so he wrote a book after that called uh illusions Mm. And that book really opened up some things in my mind. Oh, wow. I love it. I remember coming, I'm not exactly sure how, but I came across your work on Instagram. And it was this quote that absolutely, it articulated something that I have been carrying for so long. Mm. And it was, compliments can stress out the body when being seen meant experiencing threat. Mm. And so when I was, certainly since I was seven years old, I, you know, I was sexually abused and I, I totally like went into freeze, Mm -hmm. which is obviously very common. And subsequently I had to fawn a lot because it was a a family friend. Mm -hmm. So there was, it was like a continual re-traumatization and I experienced lots of boundary violations centered around my appearance and clothing. And, Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's why, because I'm a a fashion stylist, I I guess by trade. So, and I think that's why I was attracted in the first place to fashion styling, because it gave me a way to control and use clothing to, you know, as a defense kind of, and also to tell stories to like unpick what we do. Because I feel like dressing is like a form of psychology in a strange way. Um, Absolutely. No. And yeah, even now anyone that knows me well, you try and compliment me, it takes a long time for me to like unpick that because I always see that as a threat. Mm -hmm. Always. This quite big question, but please maybe tell us about the notion of trauma and its connection to the body and the responses. I know I mentioned a few, but just, you know, for anyone that wants to understand what I kind of meant by the, you know, the freeze and the fall and especially, Mm -hmm. and yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. So many great things to explore there. I I love that you said about clothing and fashion being almost a response to wanting to feel safe in your body. Yes. Um, I totally resonate with that. That was definitely my, my experience as well. It's, you know, I'll use that as a segue because trauma is the body. That's the thing. We will often think of trauma as the event itself. But what we're understanding more and more in the somatic psychology realm is that trauma is something that happens inside of you in response to something that happened outside of you. So when you had that experience in anyone listening, whether it's a sexual trauma or you were made fun of, or you were in a car accident, anything that was extremely stressful and threatening, the key is always like threat. The body will have something called a trauma response. And in that moment, in in like a nanosecond, we make all this adrenaline and our blood pressure rises and this charge builds through our nervous system. And the whole point of that charge is to propel us out of the threat. And there's these four main ways the body does this. And each one is highly nuanced in how it expresses itself. Those four ways are the fight, flight, fawn, and freeze responses. And so the fight response, that energy, that charge is propelling you toward the threat to fight it off for survival. The flight response is propelling you away from the threat because it has assessed that is too big to fight. So you run away from the threat. The fawn response, that charge propels you to socially engage 
with the perceived or actual threats. So you can try to mollify them and escape the situation. And then the freeze response is all that charge propels you inward to shut down. And then you kind of awaken once the threat is over. Trauma or being traumatized or having PTSD means that we entered into one of those trauma responses, but they never fully completed. So parts of our bodies and our minds are still recycling the fight, flight, freeze, or fawn, and sometimes several at once. So that's the biology of trauma and then how it gets expressed. So the fawn response is so insidious uh, because it's so rewarded. And it's something that's essentially taught socially, you know, in schools and other programs and at home. So we don't realize we're even doing it. We think we get it mistaken with politeness and respect and manners and saying gratitude and such. But what makes the fawn response so uh, unique and, and to really understand it, it's when we're socially engaging in a way that opposes how we're authentically feeling about the person. So if I'm at a grocery store and I'm having a conversation and inside I feel stressed or I want to go home or I'm just not interested or I'm offended, any of those things, that's happening inside and I'm constricting around that. And then my face and my hands and my words are saying opposite. I'm nodding, I'm smiling, I'm saying, oh, how interesting. I'm laughing when I don't mean it, right? So I'm leading this person on to think that I'm into them or whatever they're talking about. It's a trauma response because something in the body feels threatened to be honest, to say, I can't right now, or no, or I disagree with you. And that comes from historical events in your life and in the lives of your parents and your your grandparents even it can be intergenerational where at some point being really honest especially with a boundary like a no equaled some kind of threatening experience so now socially there's this mechanism this reflex that just turns on right away without your approval or consent and goes into these situations engaging far beyond what feels natural for you or authentic and by doing so we unintentionally break our own boundaries and other people break our boundaries because we're inviting them to through that response. And what's so important about that when I say this is that people can really hear the word reflex. And it's not like it's our fault if you're taken advantage of. It just means something in your body reflexively goes into the fawn. And you don't have control over it until you learn how to relate to it and release trauma and patterns like that. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think that that was the one when I found out about that. I was like, oh, my goodness, that that is totally so much of my life. Mm, me too. And I still like have to deal with that. And, you know, boundaries, you know, drawing them are all, mm -hmm. often very hard because I get so involved. But I have, um, well, she's two and a half now, so a little toddler, and mm -hmm. I can see exactly how all of these patterns are seeded. I have to really, like, untrain a lot of the things that, again, would be, like, reflex, like, you know, things like, you know, mm -hmm. say please, mm -hmm. um, you know. There's nothing more that shows all of these patternings than having a child that you are raising, and you can see exactly where all of this came from. Like... I'm glad you said that, because that's exactly, that's so good for people to hear here because sometimes sometimes like so okay let's let's give i'll give an example one that's not too triggering of the fawn response like in an actual threat mm. so it's like if you're walking down the road and you run into someone strange who's walking with you and they seem like they could be a threat to your life or they seem dangerous but you're nowhere near any people but you know in a couple minutes you will be the fawn response is the perfect thing to come in there because you start engaging you start making them feel like you like them. You start 
bolstering the situation or manipulating it again manipulating not in a negative way but in, in an actual way you turn the conversation into a thing where the person feels admired by you and it mollifies them and their behavior and keeps them steady until let's say you reach the town or you grow up in a household and there's a parent that has like explosive anger and you learn by making that parent happy that you're able to mollify their behavior so you can feel safer. These are moments where fawning is like actually life-saving. And then when it gets turned on, then it becomes reflexive. And that's your example where yeah. in our bodies, we're so uncomfortable with someone else's discomfort that we'll tell our children, like, don't move, don't move when I'm reading you a book or smile or mm -hmm. give him a hug. When he asks for a hug, go give your uncle a hug. And it's these moments of trying to show the other individual like my child is good my child's respectful there's nothing wrong with you it's just how they are today but we're actually breaking their boundaries and teaching them not to listen to their bodies so as parents and as educators we so reflexively teach our children how to fawn and try to make other people feel appeased and feel comfortable at the detriment of their own comfort and their own boundaries. This is it. This is exactly what I'm going through at the moment. And I like, yes. also notice when she like fully dysregulates. I know where it's coming from. I do all the things, but there are certain times when I get really triggered and I can feel myself going into the flight response where, you know, where I just need my space. Do you have any advice for just mm -hmm. how to, because I know mentally what to do, but sometimes my body is just, because it because somebody's screaming at me, it's very triggering <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> you know? that's the biggest thing with being having a traumatized system and then becoming a parent yeah. means that your child is constantly breaking your boundaries yes right like that's that's, the, that's just the bodily yeah the bodily experience of parenting is to have your boundaries broken especially someone in a female body who's parenting if you're choosing to nurse the child literally owns a part of your body right so mm. you're constantly being touched and pulled out and pinched in your hair yes. and you're being they're hitting you and they're falling on you and screaming and throwing. And so every time that the body experiences a boundary violation, even though it's not abusive, it's a child. So it's totally, you know, uh, completely reasonable and appropriate. But the body still feels that violation and the sensations around that violation they feel like the same sensations of previous threatening experiences. So there's this term we have in uh, somatic experiencing, and it's called uh, overcoupling. And it's when your body associates certain situations or sensations or people with experiences of threat because they remind the body of times they were threatened. So every time your, your two and a half year old innocently throws something at you or yells at you or hits you, the parts of the body take that as actual trauma. Mm -hmm. And so it awakens memories somatically, not even mentally, sometimes mentally, but somatically it awakens the, the state of, oh my God, I have to go into survival mode. Yeah. And then from that, we parent from our, our trauma responses. So we yell back, we go into fight, we go into flight, which is giving them a timeout, which is like a boundary or ourselves a timeout. You know, there's freeze where we just associate and get through the day with our child. And then, of course, there's the fawn where we do whatever they want because we don't want them to have a breakdown. So mm. we actually enter into these four trauma responses in relationship with our children as well because of what they awaken. Oh my goodness, this is it, yeah. And so what would be the next steps or any kind of tips for just connecting more with the body and, you know, working with somebody, you know, professionally, somatically? Yeah, so the, the one we really want to understand here is when we when we understand trauma as physical, bodily, mm. and bi biological, 
and then we understand the trauma response as a reflex. We we liken it to sneezing. You know, like you're walking through a field and pollen goes into your nose and your body sneezes it out. You don't choose to sneeze. You can't help it. It just happens. But you're able to witness it. You're able to feel those really early stages where you're eyes are tearing and your nose is kind of itching inside and there's a tickle and you know a sneeze is coming. That's what we do with trauma response. We first learn how to actually identify how our own unique bodies, because each person's different, how each person's body holds the beginning stages of a trauma response. For me, mine was fawn and flight. Like those were my go-tos, still are when I'm when I'm stressed out, but I, I lived from them for many years. So for me, whenever I start talking really fast, whenever my shoulders start lifting up to my ears, those are the early signs that say you're entering your fawn or flight. And so we learn our, our own bodies, the gestures and the early sensations before we even go into the reflex. And then as we learn what those are, we're able to have like the sensations be signals. So as we feel the sensation or the gesture or even the thought, we're able to know, oh, this is step one. And if this keeps going, I'm going to get into a full-blown trauma response or threat response or anxiety attack, like whatever we want to call it. So as you learn how to relate to these sensations as other parts of you, it becomes this like self-relating experience and self-parenting where let's say I'll give you a simple example or do you want me to lead you through one? What would you like? Yeah, lead me through one. That'd be good. Yeah. Great. So give us an example of a recent time where you've been triggered by, you said your daughter? Yeah. Yeah. Give me a recent time you've been triggered by your daughter. <laughs> um, right. Um, okay. Today, actually, we were in the grocery store and obviously classic thing. She'd seen a toy. They've got all the Christmas stuff out. And, you know, she kept putting it in the trolley and it kept saying, no. <laughs> so that was one. And then obviously descended into the, the other classic one of her, like, you know, screaming, lying down in the. Uh-huh. <laughs> great, great, great. So if you, in your mind's eye, if you see her screaming, lying down in the aisle, right? Yeah. Tell me where you feel that in your body. Where do you feel the pressure or stress from that? Um, the back of my shoulders. Okay, perfect. So let's just stay there together and just notice that pressure, that sensation. And what's strange about this work at first is we're not looking to comfort it. We just want to witness it. So as you watch it with your mind or your breath or your sensations, just notice what it does next. What happens next? It could be anything. Um, it actually starts moving to this old pain that I used to really struggle with, like mm-hmm. in my upper shoulders. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then it starts kind of radiating down. Um, down where? To my like uh, pelvis. Um, and then I just start getting like like uh, intense shocks. Like... Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. So yeah. do you have a pillow nearby? Yeah. Okay, so grab a pillow and just put it over your pelvis. Okay. And you can give it a little pressure. You can just have it resting there, whatever feels comfortable. And just tell me how your body relates to the pillow being there. Um, like immediately it starts to like release a little mm-hmm. bit. And like, yeah, just feeling into it more. Good. Let's keep feeling into it together just for a minute or so. And just notice the release and what happens next from that. Where does it go next? Um it just starts it starts kind of like melting a little bit like into into my legs Mm -hmm. beautiful 
And now with that sensation, that melting that's happening, see what it's like from that place to feel the shoulders again. What happens in the shoulders from that place of melting? They just feel so much lighter. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's just, yeah. Yeah, feel that. Let's just feel how both of those places are changing. And then with your eyes open, very slowly turn around, almost like you're checking there's nobody behind you on both sides, like to your right, really feel a spine twist, and really slowly to your left and look around the room a little bit. And then when you settle, just tell me what you're feeling or noticing. Um, it feels like I've done like a really good session of yoga, like everything feels like mm -hmm. super bright, like really, just really relaxed, like it doesn't, yeah, I just, even that's, it was so simple what just happened. Like, oh my goodness. Wow. Isn't that amazing okay. how simple it is? It's so simple. this is one, <laughs> we just like touched down. That was like the fastest session I've ever done. But it's like a touchdown. And what you, what you showed us was first identifying where your body relates to the stressful experience. So there's your daughter crying and screaming. There's your shoulders. And then we didn't comfort it at first. We just let the shoulders do their thing. And it turned into this intense pain, this like radiating down to the pelvis and these shocks. Mm. And then we brought in the pillow to start like counteracting that a little bit. It's what I call creating safety. So the pillow comes in and you notice what part of my body is able to relate to the pillow. And your whole lower section was melting. It was able to go right there. And then from that, you were able to take in your shoulders and your shoulders started attuning to that part of the body why that works or why that happens the way it does is and then of course you looked around the room which was important I'll explain that in a moment when you're experiencing something very stressful whether it's your daughter crying or a car accident anything whether it's actually traumatic and threatening or it's just stressful the body some part of the body is going to constrict to preserve itself from a possible danger that's just the nature of the body when there's a shock so for parents, you're there in this supermarket and this is happening. And as your shoulders are constricting and there's this pain, which we're doing not in real time, we're looking back on it, doing it now together. You're still able to feel and go into that and conjure that up. Your body in that moment might have wanted to push out. It might have wanted to scream from the shoulders. It might have wanted to look around <laughs> and make sure no one was judging you. And there's so many things that the body wants to do, but you're there as a mother, you're with your daughter, and it's mm -hmm. not socially acceptable to go wild with your body usually in public. So we're at this point in our conditioning where a stressful thing occurs, but there's no physical release from the stress. So the stress just compounds and it builds through the day. So what we did was we just slowly went into some releasing and then reorienting to your current state of safety, which is the room you're in. Then your body is literally able to release the stress from that event. And that's essentially what we do. I mean, we did it so quick, but it goes much deeper and there's much more to learn around that. Of course. Oh, it's so, it's amazing. It's, I love this work. Mm. How did you get into this, like initially? Yeah, so it started many years ago, actually, almost 17 years ago. I, I was extremely traumatized. Mm. Same, same as you, I had sexual abuse. I had um, a lot of body shame, body trauma. And I coped with food. And so I became very ill. I became overweight. I had like three or four chronic debilitating illnesses. And I was, and I was just 12 years old. I was very young. And so one day, a couple of years after that, when I was 15, I was strumming a guitar 
and the vibrations from the instrument felt really good in certain parts of my body. And looking back on it, I noticed that, that I realized at that moment, it was the first time I felt a safety in my body, you know, since the assault and all the bullying and my own self-hatred. So this part of my body I was so cut off from suddenly started to feel like, oh, it feels good there. And, you know, it's interesting because that's really what began this work, this very natural uh, awareness of, oh, my body wants more safety and my body wants me to relate to it, which was the opposite of what I was doing. I was hating on it and hiding it. So this, it just turned into nutrition, herbalism, coaching. And then I finally discovered um, I was majoring in psychology and I discovered somatic experiencing which is a somatic a trauma healing. It's a somatic psychology. It's like going to therapy, but instead of just talking, you're doing exactly what you and I did. So mm. you use some context and then we go into the body and we learn how to relate and release these things. So when I found the somatic experiencing, that was, that was really the puzzle piece to give me some language to what I've been doing intuitively, but didn't know what it was. And then I, I really started developing my practice from there. Like, this is so interesting. Um, mm. Yeah, I love your work around food as well, which I find fascinating how mm. we choose foods in an attempt to regulate. Like, please right. maybe explain a little bit about that because it's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, you said it perfectly. There's what we call cravings, um, what we call addictions and behaviors with food or anything else is exactly what you said. It's an attempt to regulate food. I've learned this after being a nutritionist for 10 years and watching people heal trauma by accident, by healing their diets. I started putting two and two together and realizing, oh, there's certain foods that create a biochemical safety literally through um, balancing the blood sugar, through detoxifying adrenaline, through nourishing the adrenals, nourishing the nervous system. These four important factors of certain food types and diets starts helping the body feel the lack of threat biochemically. And then from there, the body feels more open to the world around it. And then trauma is actually able to release. And why that is, is because there's, there's a group of foods that are stimulants, there's a group of foods that are depressants, and then there's groups of foods that are nourishers. And the nourishing, balancing foods, they sober us to ourselves. So we tend to not go toward those when we're in pain. We don't want to be sober to the pain because we don't know what to do with it. So like the little exercise you and I did, when you learn more about somatic practices and exercises, you learn all these different tools and ways to communicate to your body. So this self-trust develops. And if an anxiety attack is coming on, it doesn't turn into one because you know how to now relate to the charge of anxiety. But before we know how to do that, we're just driven by the anxiety. We're not actually relating or, or making it conscious. And so what that looks like is when a charge comes in and my body gets really stimulated, I reflexively move toward foods that are very depressing. Things like marijuana, alcohol, especially wine, the yes. high fat foods like potato chips and fried foods and breads and cheeses and ice creams, all these things lower, they exhaust my body, which means I stop making adrenaline. So when you're in a panic attack, you, you become adrenalized. And then the moment you eat these foods, the adrenaline stops being made. So it's literally regulating your system. It's not just like a thought in the mind. It's a biological mm -hmm. experience. 
So that's where food comes in. I yeah, I remember. I I think you, I've had it on the podcast that, that you do, and I was just like, oh my goodness, because I, especially before I became a mother, I was so much like if I was stressed, like mm-hmm. I just I would I would just not eat, like because mm-hmm. I just felt like I couldn't, because mm-hmm. I was just like in this. And like when I, when you articulated that, I was like, oh my goodness, this makes so much sense. And then when I was like super super stimulated, like if I'd been like working loads, like doing like lo- long hours, like on shoots, like then I'd always like come back and have wine and. I was like, yep. ah, okay, this makes so much sense. And it like feeds into everything with the addictions, everything, everything, like just everything. Every- and you, you gave a really great example of the cycle I call seesaw regulation, where mm-hmm. you're skipping meals. So you're actually yeah. adrenalizing yourself to get through the day. Yeah. And then you're so adrenalized, you can't rest or sleep. So then you have to depress yourself with wine. So it's like mm-hmm. a perfect example. And we all do it. And you think it's just the way of life. But then you start noticing, oh, this is actually like an intelligent sophisticated thing my body's doing is choosing activities and foods that either hype me up or depress me yeah and most of us don't know the middle we don't know it's like to be in that middle space that's it because the body's always trying to get back to it like the homeostasis yeah that's what's so cool about it is it's it's um it's not a privileged desire to be regulated it's a necessity like you can't digest you can't repair wounds, you can't sleep, you have to get to the homeostasis to survive. So even though these adaptive strategies could be what's called maladaptive, it still helps you survive. So there's a purpose there. And it's just mm-hmm. uh, honoring that purpose and then learning other ways. Right. So I, I always say that they should be taught like properly, properly. Oh like, my goodness, you know? me. That's one of my, one of my, you said my life's purpose earlier. Yeah. One of my goals is to get some serious programs into public education. So this yeah. becomes just like a, a normal experience. Yeah. Right. Because this is like the basis of so much of like, oh it's like goodness. literally living, you know. It's that's- literally, yeah. <laughs> It's everything. everything. (laughs) We live from our bodies, right? So it's like everything comes from this state. I love what you said earlier as well about how you used um, music and like the vibrations of that. And, you know, was that something, was it self-taught, did you say? And you just kind Mm -hmm. of started expressing yourself and that led on. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. It it was was self-taught and it was totally, you know, how when you look back on certain eras of your life and you think wow that thing saved me and at the time you didn't notice that it Mm. that's what music was for me it gave me this corner in my home to be quietly privately processing things that I didn't even have memories for you know I look at lyrics from that time and I'm obviously talking about sexual assault but I still had blacked out the memories so Mm. it was giving my body permission to start uh, releasing and speaking about things that I never thought I would or could or even remembered. And that helped me understand again that, you know, I believe what we call the subconscious, a lot of that is the body. It's under this conscious mind, which we usually point to our heads and we think of our minds or our brains. And it holds so many events and experiences. And music for me was this way to kind of like cleanse those out of my body through movement and song and, and story, definitely. Mm, yeah, I had to listen to um, your newest like album earlier. It's, it's so healing. It's like oh, so thanks. folky and like mystical. I yeah, love it. And finally, what are you working on at the moment? Mm-hmm. I've been working from my little ivory tower because of COVID. <laughs> I can't really go out and yeah. teach classes. I actually offer a six week course it happens four times a year. There's one every one six week rotation every season 
I'm currently in it as we speak. So the next one is going to be either February or March, 2022. But that's really one of the best ways to learn this work with me because it's so in depth about how to do this process yourself, whether you're a therapist or just an individual that wants to, to learn how to do this with yourself. But yeah, I, I, that's my favorite offering at the moment, in addition to the podcast and my writing on Instagram. Oh, I love, I just think you're just so wise. And thank you so much for sharing your time with me, honestly. Oh, you're so welcome. It's been yeah, really nice like, I mean, there's so much to say, but like, I feel like I don't want to overload people. Um, <laughs> right. But like, I would love to speak to you again, like, because I love all your work around, like, you know, decolonization and stuff like that. Mm. But I feel like that's just like a... Like, <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other, a whole other show. <laughs> but I'd be, I'd be honored to come back and talk about that for sure. speaking about trauma it made me think about where we find trauma signatures in the birth chart and one of the key planets which represents this is Pluto so Pluto represents the depth of our subconscious I see it as all of our compulsions obsessions and our deepest emotional needs for security So in mythology, Pluto was the ruler of hell, otherwise known as Hades. He was Zeus's brother or Jupiter's brother. So as a consequence, it is represented with all things shadow, hidden, anything taboo, trauma and the subconscious. But also as a result of that, Once we understand Pluto and its function in our birth chart, we can understand how to navigate it and to ultimately transform this into our own particular gold. It's the modern ruler of Scorpio. It's actually Scorpio season now at the time of recording. In the Northern Hemisphere, obviously, this is when the nights are drawing in, it's getting darker. So it's a a lot more introspective time of year. As a result of Pluto obviously ruling Scorpio, the sign, this is where the connection with the emotional needs comes in because Scorpio is actually a fixed water sign, which means that it's associated with our emotional waters and because it's fixed, it's that steady, deep, dark water that's very still but kind of holds all the secrets. (laughs) Obviously, Scorpio energy is represented by the scorpion, which is our base kind of carnal desires. Because of all of these connections with trauma, intensity, obsessions, compulsions, it can sometimes, in its shadow side, as a result of this, be connected to the use and abuse of power and the use of money, resources, and sex for control. That's why Scorpio rules the eighth house in astrology, which is to do with all of those things. It's the urge to merge, connect with other people. But as I said, sometimes in the shadow side, this is where all of these power plays can come out. So that's why at its base level, so when I say base, I'm talking in terms of the chakras, that's the carnal desires of Scorpio. But obviously, once we start to dig deeper, dig beneath the surface, which Scorpio energy likes to do, and raise our vibration, raise that kundalini energy through the spine upwards, it then is represented by transforming into the eagle. And the eagle is also associated with the pineal gland, otherwise known as the third eye in some cultures. So this is for higher vision, intuition, and that's why you see on flags and in some 
churches, they will have symbols of eagles because it's for higher vision, but sometimes again, it's that Scorpio shadow side can be to do with use and abuse of power and control. Ultimately, at its highest evolution, it is the phoenix, bird of immortality, life, death and rebirth continually. So how does this work in real time? So as I mentioned, where we find Pluto in our birth chart, in the house we find it and the sign we find it in, represents a lot about what we ultimately need at our sub subconscious. What are the needs? What are the driving forces? For example, me, I have my Pluto in the sixth house. So I have a deep, intense need to serve others, sometimes work to exhaustion, <laughs> um, very intense person. And because of where my Pluto falls, it's quite near my seventh house, which is the house all to do with relationships. So that is why I have quite tumultuous relationships with others, <laughs> to put it lightly. Obviously, as with all things with astrology, it's not just where is it in birth chart, it's also the aspects it's making to other planets within the chart. But Pluto at its root isn't something to be feared, so too is Scorpio energy. It's something that we need to understand, work through with the body, and we always look at the polarity point in astrology. So Scorpio energy ruled by Pluto, its opposite sign, Scorpio, is Taurus, which is about incarnating in the body, being with the senses, the five, five physical senses, and enjoying life's luxuries, being present in the moment. And by luxuries, I don't just mean material, you know, it's just, breathing, being out in nature, etc. So that you can see where the polarity point is between those two signs. That's why it was said that souls would incarnate on the Milky Way at the constellation of Taurus, between Taurus and Gemini, and souls would leave between Scorpio and Sagittarius. That's why during Scorpio season, there are a lot of rituals all around the world to do with honoring the ancestors and death. That's why Halloween was reappropriated, but ultimately at its core, it's about honoring the ancestors. In the Druid tradition, they would sacrifice animals and use the meat and store it for the winter. So you can kind of see where all of the war and the, and the fear of death, but ultimately this is what Pluto and Scorpio energy is about. It's about transforming, understanding the darkness and acknowledging it to transform for better. You know, they say the wound is the womb, you know? So that's the point of healing. That's often our greatest medicine. So if you would like to know more about Pluto in your charts or any more in-depth explanations, I'm offering one-on-one -on -one readings for your birth chart or I can delineate certain parts of your birth chart if you would like. Um, so the link is all in the show notes.